Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, will be geriatric medicine specialist Dr. Peter Morrow of St. Cloud, Florida. And to prepare for the interview, we have some facts about aging in America. Yeah, Tom, so that's that's one question that uh, I never really got a good answer to in medical school. When do you call someone old? Oh, boy. Uh, probably never. <laughs> <laughs> when, is, when is someone an elderly patient? Yeah, what is old? You know, the answer that I heard years ago is old is 15 years older than you are. Uh, so it's a moving target. It's a moving target. It's it's very convenient that way. And, you know, I've, I've thought about this during different points in my life. And, yeah, because... You know, I'm 56 now, and I used to think that was really old. And right now, I'm pretty darn healthy, very active, and I don't feel as old as I thought 56 was when I was in my 20s. Don't worry, Tom. 60 is the new 50. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that's why I keep wondering. You know, in fact, I, I started Googling things like that. Is 60 the new 50? Is 40 the new 30? I I don't know. You know, everybody, I think <clears throat> now we, we live such a different life than people did even 100 years ago where we do have the ability to stay in generally good health if we take care of ourselves. I mean, there's a sedentary nature of things and obesity, but for people who have access to, to health care, you can stay in really good health into later years. Oh, absolutely. You know, when 65 years old was kind of set as elderly by the Social Security Administration when it was founded in 1936, only 5% of the population was older than 65, and the average life expectancy of a 65-year-old back then was five years. Yeah, that, that sounds like a, a much smaller impact on the budget than it has grown to today. Oh, my. Yes. I mean, that's demographics has, has changed. And now, you know, the life expectancy of a 65-year-old in America uh, is roughly 15 years. That's incredible. So it has changed greatly. In fact, in the year 1900, only 4% of the U.S. was 65 or older. A century later, in 2000, it was 12%. And next year, or I guess when this is airing, 2020, it'll be 17% of the population, or over 50 million people, will be 65 or older. Yeah, so that leads to a lot of unique health things, right? As, as folks get older, they have unique health problems. So today we're excited to talk about geriatric medicine. Yeah, and you know, if I was looking for a number to set at old, looking at a number of different articles online, what I came up to was the concept of frailty. When does it become harder to heal or to recover from things? It seems like around the age of 80, now is when that seems to be happening. What do you think about it? It's arbitrary. But. It, it is. It's it's definitely up to the person. And and one thing that you know we we do say sometimes when we're charting on patients for physical exams, uh, appears stated age or appears older or younger than stated <laughs> yes, age. Yes. Yes. Because uh, you see some of those folks and you look at them, you say that is an old person. Oh my, they're forty two. Yes. Um, and then you see other folks, and you're like, oh, they're doing great. They've got thirty years left to live. There's no way they're eighty seven. Right. You know. Right. And you you almost can't pick it for for individual people. But I like the idea of frailty, and and maybe it's when that patient feels old. <laughs> you know, because I I talk to a lot of people, and they're like, man, I still inside, I feel like I'm twenty five, just bulletproof. Mm-hmm. But they start having medical problems. But then there is a definite time when people start to feel old. And uh, I think that might be a useful thought as well, kind of the frail concept. Now, uh, the CDC tracks data on life expectancy in the United States. And for the last year, they have data from 2016 to 2017. The life expectancy in the United States went down. Yeah, that's scary, isn't it? It is. And it's primarily due to increased deaths due to drug overdose, and suicide. Yeah, the opioid epidemic really has been dragging down some of those numbers. I, I almost wonder if they took out the opioid deaths, if, if the life expectancy would still be on the rise. But it definitely, when you take it all together, it's going in the wrong direction. Yes. In fact, over the three years from 2014 to 2017, the average life expectancy in the U.S. went down uh, 0.3 years, from 78.9 to 78.6 uh, and it's interesting that there are many countries with a life expectancy that's greater than the United States. 
even though we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world, I think we also have a higher rate of bad behavior going on. I, I think so. There's there's a lot of troubles that are unique to America, and I think it's worth also pointing out the difference between the sexes, that uh, men usually don't have quite as long of a life expectancy as women do. Why is it, Andrew? Um, we'd have to ask my wife. <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of things. I think I think. Are we good for them? <laughs> I think cardiovascular. There's a lot of protection that women have with estrogen before they go through menopause cardiovascularly, and then additionally, men make a lot of bad decisions, and women don't as much. That's. So I'll blame it on that. As that's well. exactly true, and and the way that life expectancy uh, is calculated is based on. So if your life expectancy in 2019 is 79 years, it means a baby born in 2019, all things being equal to the way they are now health-wise, that baby has a best chance of living 79 years. Now, of course, things change. So like when our parents were born, their life expectancy was much lower, but health conditions, behaviors improved over time. So the life expectancy they were born with is not the life expectancy that they're experiencing now at this point in their lives. Right. And who knows what happens in the future with not only the, the deaths due to opioids and other things, but also to obesity. And in our last episode, we talked about diabetes. Those types of chronic health conditions definitely drag down life expectancy as well. You know, and life expectancy across the globe varies from continent to continent. The continent with the um, highest life expectancy is uh, Europe. 82 years for uh, women, a little lower for men, 75 for men. Whereas in North America, it's similar. It's 81 for women and uh, 76 for men. Those Scandinavians, though, they're the ones that are around 82-year average. Uh, That's it's incredible. just amazing. Yeah, so cold weather must be a good preservative. Yeah, it's. I know there's been a lot of things people have looked at about different uh, dietary considerations for number one and, and the number two different lifestyle and activity patterns with more public transportation and walking and things of that nature. But there's definitely something to it. I, I will say for America, we've got a narrower spread than some of those countries between the sexes. Yes. Which is a nice <clears throat> thing for the men. We America. are better <laughs> than the worldwide <laughs> average, which is 75 years for women, 70 for men. Uh, and the, the continent that has it the worst for a number of reasons is Africa. The average yes. man lives to Social Security age of 65, or the average woman lives to 65. The average man doesn't reach Social Security age, even early. They, they average out at 61. Wow. And, you know, looking at the, the leading causes of death in the United States, uh, these are probably a lot of the common things that uh, Dr. Morrow is going to talk to us about that he sees. Uh, number one cause of death in the United States, heart disease. Correct. And, and yes. Number two right behind it, cancer. cancer. Ah, but the number three cause was surprising to me, unintentional injuries, otherwise known as accidents. Yeah, that's the one that affects men, I think, more than women. Uh, yes. So if you, you Google uh, photographs, why women live longer than men, you will see some hope, incredibly funny and hopefully <laughs> staged pictures of guys doing really dumb things, like having metal ladders over a swimming pool working on electrical um, <laughs> fixtures Yeah, with, with metal tools Yeah, and things like that are just bad ideas. Fourth leading cause of death, chronic lower respiratory disease, which is typically a result of In smoking. Smoking and inf infection like pneumonia and stuff like that. Right, right. Uh, and then uh, number three, four, five, six, seven on the list, our last show, diabetes. Number six on the list, Alzheimer's. And the older we live, the more people get Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, it's, it's interesting talking to some of my uh, older patients and you're, you're going through the family history, you know, uh, did your parents have any, you know, you, you name a, a geriatric disease like Alzheimer's or something like that. They say, no, both my parents died in their 50s, so they, they never lived right. long enough never would have known. To, to even have that type of family history. Right. So for, for a lot of geriatric patients, this is a, a new frontier. And, you know, I, it just hit me. It might be a reason why the thing I operate on all day long, skin cancer is increasing because people are living longer. The longer they live, the more of these skin cancers they have. So it's probably the case there, except people rarely die of that. That's probably why Alzheimer's. they didn't have most surgery 100 years ago. The, the, and because <laughs> Frederick Mose 100 years ago was 18 years old. Years, <laughs> no, something like that. I mean, he was born in like 1900. Yeah. Oh, it was another, <coughs> another century. 
man. So the things that affect life expectancy, you know, uh, the most are public health, medical care, and and diet. And uh, the country with the highest life expectancy as of 2017 was Hong Kong, which is now not a country, but 85 years in Japan, 84 years. Those were the best. So before we get into our interview with Dr. Peter Morrow, I have a trivia question. Actually, it's a three-parter. And even this bonus, I've had a number of older patients come into me to say, the only golden thing about the golden years is the... <laughs> have you heard this, Andrew? <laughs> I, I don't know if I want to fill in the blanks. I, well, I have not heard this specific well, one. Well, filling in the blank would fill in what is ex, uh, extremely common in diabetic patients before they're diagnosed. <laughs> yes, the only golden thing about the golden years is the urine. I've had many <laughs> patients tell me this, so I trust them. So anyway, more people than ever are living past the age of 100. In a 2014 study of over 35,000 English people who died after the age of 100, their cause of death were compared to those of people dying at the same time in their early 80s, between the ages of 80 and 84. So, a three-part question. Number one, were those over 100 more or less likely than those in their 80s to die from heart disease? Second, were those over 100 more or less likely than those in their 80s to die of cancer? Remember, these are the two most common causes of death. And then the final question is, what rapid onset or acute disease is three times more likely to cause death in those over 100 than those under 100. You'll have to wait till the end of the show to find the answer, but we'll be right back on Dr. Doctor with our guest, Dr. Peter Morrow. Welcome back to our special guest today, who is Dr. Peter Morrow. He graduated from medical school at the University of Miami and then did his residency in internal medicine in Denver at Presbyterian St. Luke's Hospital. He's done added qualification uh, training in geriatrics throughout his uh, career. And he moved to St. Cloud, Florida after his training, which at the time only had 10,000 people, but five nursing homes and a huge community of World War II retirees some decades ago. And those patients have grown old along with Peter's practice. He's married to Chris, has two daughters, 11 grandchildren so far. He's twice the past president of the Catholic Medical Association, and he's here with us today on Dr. Doctor. Welcome, Peter Morrow. Thank you, Tom, so much. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you, uh, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be with both of you. Yes, and you told me you've got a story about a couple that you recently had as patients that kind of highlight the importance of geriatric medicine. Yeah, thank you. You know, one of the things that I think is is concerning should be concerning to all of us, especially in geriatrics. You know, the the final stages of one's life should be the best and most comforting, but sometimes I think we get this all reversed. And, you know, in, instead of living each day with God's grace, we try and take control of our lives, and especially control of our deaths. Um, I want to share with you a, a story that, that happened uh, just last month. I have a, a couple of patients, of husband and wife, who I've known for several years. They were actually born in, in France and in Germany and Europe and spent many of the years there and then also come back to the United States. And so every summer they go back to France and Germany and uh, they came back again this winter. And it was kind of concerning because they sat down with me. They're both in good health, but getting along in age, one in their 70s, one in their 80s. And they were talking about, you know, their end of life plans. And they actually brought up that many of their friends in Europe, when they get to a point in life, end their lives together through a process of physician-assisted suicide. And unfortunately, it's not that uncommon for couples to do this. And they go to a place in, in Switzerland, uh, the Dignitas Clinic, and together they, they get together, they hold hands, and then they take medications and they pass away together. And... I started talking to them, and I said, do you really realize what you're saying that you're doing? And in discussing it with them, they thought that they didn't want to be a burden to others. Uh, they would be concerned about what would happen if they lost their strength and their function and their memory. 
And I, and I said, have you talked this over with, with your children and how they feel about it? And they said, no. So they went back and talked to them and came back later and we talked about it. And, and they said, well, thank you, because our children thought we were crazy. Uh, <laughs> Good <to>. answer. <laughs> and, and, and I thought, you know, this is, you know, I guess the, the part that bothers me the, the most is that there is a subtle pressure in the culture to even consider uh, controlling your death and using physicians as a suicide as you get older. And unfortunately, some will actually consider this, uh, interpret this as a duty not to be a burden on others and on the other generation. And I think St. Pope John Paul II said it very well, that this is a false mercy and a false understanding of, of what life is meant to be. In other words, the move for physician-assisted suicide here is not because of intractable pain. It's more of a sense of being a burden or a loss of autonomy or even more treatable loneliness. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And that there's, there's no pain. There's no terminal illness here. It's just they uh, want to be you know, in control and fear of loss of autonomy. Yes. So well, doctors like you can do a lot to help patients with their medical problems at this point in their life so that they don't have to face their fears as soon as they might have to. So you as a geriatric physician are, are endowed with <coughs> special knowledge of the aging process. At least that's what it says on your subspecialty website. So <laughs> share some of this special knowledge about the aging process you think that we and our listeners should know. Sure. Um, you know, I think the first thing to realize about the, the aging process is that it is very difficult to make major general statements uh, about this age group, um, especially when you think that we're talking about those that start at age 65 and extend to well over 100. That's a 35-year span. And it's yes. hard to make general statements when you have that large of a, of a span of, of people. And the other issue to realize is that everybody ages at a different rate. Some people in their 60s have a rather accelerated aging. Other people in their 90s are still young and very active. Yes. So aging is a, is, is, a, is a difficult area to work with because everybody ages differently and at a different rate. But I think it's important also, this is the other thing, there are several myths about the aging process that I think we need to talk about it and dispel some of these myths. Um, and, and one of these myths is, you know, you can't learn new things as you get older. You know, the old adage, you can't teach an old dog a new trick, really doesn't apply to the elderly. And we have found that with training, older people can develop new skills and process new information very efficiently. And uh, several studies have been looking at uh, ways to optimize this training so we can continue uh, in our age, in our aging years, uh, to grasp and, and obtain new knowledge. What are some of these things? Um, you know, I, what should we do each day, Peter? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Ask your patients if they are digitally connected, especially your over 75 group. And I think you'll be surprised at what you'll hear. You know, most of the 75-year-olds, uh, at least 50% of them, have a smartphone now. And given an opportunity, uh, they'll use laptops and computers just like anybody else. Um, I think my, my, my mom is probably one of the best examples of this in that she used her computer uh, until she passed away well into her 90s, <laughs> uh, sharing recipes and emails with her friends. And she kept current and active on the computer and using her mind uh, up until the end of her life. So I, I think it's, we, we can't assume that they can't uh, obtain new knowledge and new skills. And I think the Internet and the the electronic uh, communications are very important uh, for the elderly to keep connected. And there's, isn't there some evidence to suggest that exercising the brain in that way also makes people feel better, or maybe you, you could even say feel less old? Oh, it, 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 exactly, Andrew. You know, the, the, the more you exercise the brain, the, the brain cells themselves actually expand and make new pathways. And I think these are things that we're finding out, and it definitely increases somebody's... Uh, uh, endorphins and how one feels about themselves. So uh, exactly, sure. So does this mean crossword puzzles, Sudoku, uh, social conversations, you know, great courses on tape? What what does it involve? 
Well, everything that you can do to keep your mind stimulated and active as you go forward in life is is going to be important. And that will always keep you more connected and, and more engaged in your community and with your patients. Peter, one of the things you told me you enjoy the most about taking care of this age group is helping them to navigate the incredibly complex uh, medical industrial complex that helps with their health. What are some tips that you can give patients to help them best use the healthcare system? Well, you know, I think I think you've got to sit down with your patients and and start to have the conversation. Um, and ask them what they perceive are the most important needs and concerns that they have. Um, once you get an idea of what they're thinking, um, their needs are, what they think their medical problems are, then you start balancing that uh, with, with your medical judgment. And then you come up with, I think, a list of priorities that you will work for in goals to say that these are the medical issues and problems that I want to treat most and these are most important to me. You know, not every symptom needs to be or can be treated, um, but that process needs to be worked through. Well, and and you bring up a a good point about navigating and and trying to work through things. It seems like with the current system, a lot of folks, especially geriatric patients, have a different doctor for each body system got a cardiologist, a podiatrist, you name it. What, what is the best balance for a patient to seek between a, a primary care physician and their specialty physicians? You know, finding that balance, Andrew, is, is, is a challenge, but it's a challenge you've got to work with. Um, specialty care, I think, has made so many wonderful advances in, in helping people and in, in dealing with diseases. But on the other hand, it can become burdensome when you have a cardiologist and a pulmonologist and a neurologist and having to coordinate those things. I think it comes to a point where, as a coordinator of comprehensive care, the primary care geriatrician or internist has got to sit down and and take that information from the specialists and then transmit that to the patient. And then they become the primary primary care that follows the patient and then just refers back to the specialist when an issue arises or one that can't be taken care of. Are there any tricks that a patient can follow to find such a physician who will do that for them? That's a a great question. Um, When you look at the supply of physicians out there, especially geriatric physicians, there just are not enough geriatric physicians out there uh, to cover all the patients. But what I think you can do is, and you may have to try a couple of uh, other primary care physicians if you can't find a geriatric uh, primary care physician, work with uh, either internal medicine or family practice, but work with them and see if they have a love for dealing with geriatrics. Some do and some do not. And you might have to try a couple of different primary care doctors to find one, but they're out there. And when you find one that has a certain love for caring for geriatric patients, then uh, you can work with them and, and go a long way How with, can you with tell? needs. First, ask them, and when you're in there, get a feel for how much time they spend with you. You know, the factor is time. Uh, it takes more time to deal with geriatric patients. There are just more problems that you have to deal with. And if the office isn't set up to deal with that, then it's probably not the right place to be. It, it makes it tough, too, on the, on the primary care side when a lot of the reimbursement for caring for patients uh, is limited at more or less two problems. So if, if you see a uh, child or, or maybe a, a young adult with high blood pressure and a sinus infection, that you, you would get paid the same from the insurance as if you see a senior citizen with, you know, 12 different medicines they're on. Hopefully they're not on 12, but... Yeah, that's the gist of it is that there's not even a lot of good compensation to co- to give you enough time with some of these uh, senior citizen patients. Uh, that's, that is so true. And the way the system is set up now, there is not a lot of leeway in that. Um, and so you're going to find doctors that are decided to, to forego the, the reimbursement to deal with the patients. Peter, 
not only do patients have doctor appointment overload, they also have medication overload. They're often taking so many medicines that we use the term polypharmacy to refer to it. How can a patient suspect when they might be on too many medicines? Well, uh, when, when you do your first, show, first initial interview and you get the med list, uh, and, and this number changes, but if, if the medicines start to peak over 10, you know you might have a problem. And if many of the medicines are used to treat side effects from other medicines, <laughs> yes. you know you've got a problem. Yes. Sometimes we call them two-pagers in our clinic, two-page med lists. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But it's, it's, it's an interesting moving target because 10 years ago, you know, it was maybe more than six medications was polypharmacy than 10 medications. And with the advances, if, if a patient has diabetes, hypertension, and high cholesterol, well, you might have six pills right there just to keep optimal control on, on those three problems. Um, but I think it's, it's not so much the, the number of medicines as the type of the medicines and what the medicines are used for. So should a good geriatric physician be willing to look at that regularly? Uh, every visit. Every I mean, visit. That's something you. Every visit. That's something you have to look at every visit, and if they see other specialists, you have to update the med list every time they come in because you're not totally sure of what somebody else may have added to the medication list. Well, yeah. in this first half of the interview, there's one other question I want to cover before our break, and that is something that we think of frequently with infants and children, but not as much with older patients, and that is vaccinations. How important are they mm. to the health of elderly patients? Vaccinations are becoming more and more important. You know, it was something that probably wasn't stressed in the past, but I think it's, it's, it's vital now to go through all the vaccinations and, and work on, and I think there are probably four important vaccinations to try and be sure that your patients are up to date on or at least have an opportunity to be up to date on you know the the flu shot we're right in the middle of flu season yes. and the flu shot is is really critical to to keep that up um, and to get that every year because this flu strain changes every year and so the shot has to change every year um, the pneumonia shot you know uh, pneumonia is one of the leading causes of of morbidity in in our senior citizens and there are two pneumonia shots out there now and it's important that they get them both um, at different time intervals but it's still important to be uh, vaccinated against uh, pneumonia um, a, a good one to always tell them if they don't like to get shots is to get an update on their pertussis if they're going to be grandparents um, they really don't want grandma and grandpa to see the new babies unless they've had an update on their whooping cough or their pertussis vaccine. And so that's one I think that's really important to get. And it comes with a tetanus shot. So that gives them just a little bit of an advantage. And the last shot that I think is very important is the new shingles shot that's out there, shingles prevention vaccination. There's one that's come out recently that's produced morally and in an acceptable way doesn't use any aborted fetal stem cells in, in the production, and I think it's one that can give them some good benefit against the pre uh, prevention of, of a shingles outbreak. It's almost twice as effective as the previous shingles shot. Um, so and this one's called Shingrix, correct? Correct. Hey, that's wonderful information. We're going to hold on and cover something really important right after the break here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back at Dr. Doctor with Dr. Peter Morrow, and we're discussing geriatric medicine. You know, Peter, one of the things that comes up a lot as, as we age is the, the thought of our advanced directives. And kind of as we transition more into palliative care and the end of life, and there's a lot of controversies, you know, about things you had mentioned at the beginning of the show about a story regarding physician-assisted suicide. How can we make sure patients' wishes are known, and especially how can we dodge issues that might be unethical for patients that they might be coerced to do? Sure. Great, great question, Andrew. You know, the advanced directives are just that. Um, the documents that you sign in which you're trying to make medical decisions that you think are important to you but you're making them way in advance of needing them. And if we're not careful, that's a very difficult task to, to do. 
you know, if you go back and look at the the history of the advanced directive, you know, it was originally promoted in the 1970s by the euthanasia societies. Yes. Which which makes this document, you know, having some very auspicious beginnings. But over time, there are ways um, in which you can use an advanced directive appropriately um, and protect yourself from uh, denying yourself actually ordinary care uh, when the time comes. You know, we, most of us probably aren't sure what we want to eat for lunch next week, <laughs> uh, let alone what our medical needs will be five years from now. Exactly. So, you know, I think the ways uh, to protect yourself with a properly written advanced directive are to include, you know, some basic principles in your advanced directive and not specific orders. You, you never want to put in your advanced directive, you know, I never want this treatment or that treatment because you don't really know years from now whether that treatment could be a bridge to recovery uh, or whether that uh, treatment would be helpful or whether that health treatment would not be helpful. So I think the better thing to do with an advanced directive is to put in some, just some general principles that you would like them to follow when that time comes, when you cannot speak for yourself. And, you know, I think some of these principles are, you know, I would like my pain relieved. The church, the Catholic Church, is very strong in, in supporting patients to be kept as free of pain as possible. Um, now, this needs to be balanced with the patient's uh, moral uh, needs and duties to the family as they uh, prepare with full consciousness to meet Christ. But uh, there's there's nothing wrong with, with requesting pain medication at that time. But you don't want to say... Uh, exactly how much or how, how little, but just say that you'd like your pain relieved. That's a good um, first principle. Other, what do you have as a second principle, Peter? A second principle is, is you know, we have to decide treatments, are they going to be ordinary or extraordinary, or are they going to be burdensome, or are they going to be useful? You know, when someone is going to say this treatment is, is good for you, you kind of have to ask yourself some questions. Does this treatment serve as a bridge to recovery from a, acute medical problem? Um, does it alleviate suffering from an ongoing condition, or does this treatment offer a little hope of benefit and actually becoming a burden to me, of which case there's no obligation to accept burdensome treatments. But you're not going to know that at the time, until it's time that it's, it's needed, um, which is why to, to do an advanced directive properly, we have to go back and realize we're going to need a healthcare surrogate, someone to speak for us. Um, because the advanced directives, you know, really don't take effect until we cannot speak for ourselves, at which time your surrogate, your spouse, your family member is going to be speaking for you and, and making these decisions for you um, using these guidelines that, that uh, you could put into your advanced directive. You know, Peter, one of the things that I, I get asked a lot when we talk about advanced directives is many of the secular advanced directives come with um, wording suggesting that they would never want to have a feeding tube. And that mm -hmm. a lot of people recognize, and, and some people don't put them at odds, is that correct, with church teachings regarding ordinary means of nutrition. How, how would you deal with that when, when you have folks saying, I'd never want to have a feeding tube no matter what? Yeah, and, and I would say that you have to really think about that because church teaching places hydration and nutrition as ordinary care. And I think you have to explain to patients that, you know, ordinary care is something we really need to do. We don't want to force our physicians to let us die with dehydration. If hydration can help us, I think the church and their wisdom has taught us that we need to be hydrated. Um, and this is where food and nutrition is important. And this is where you have to be very careful and say, you might want to have that feeding tube. You know, the other scenario was going to be if you had a stroke and you couldn't speak for yourself and you couldn't swallow, but it was somewhat temporary, this feeding tube could easily be a bridge to recovery to helping you. And if you put this into an advanced directive that you don't want it, you again may be at odds with what the church teaches and what actually is going to be in, in your best interest. Well, you've covered three things, uh, relieving pain, assessing whether or not something's ordinary, extraordinary care, and third, food nutrition. Uh, I think you've got a couple other points you want to make. 
you know, the other one is, is two others. The, the other one is going to be prohibiting euthanasia. Now, it's, it's kind of sad that we have to actually state that, but like we talked earlier, we're in a culture where physician-assisted suicide and, and euthanasia uh, is becoming more and more common. And the church makes it very clear that physician-assisted suicide is, you know, uh, prohibited uh, through um, the church teaching, and that we have to be clear that we don't want anything in our advanced directives that could lead to phys- uh, to euthanasia. And then finally, and most importantly, uh, requesting spiritual care. Yes, I mean I think this is what makes our uh, living well, truly Catholic, uh, when we put in there that we request uh, the sacraments be given, the sacraments of penance, anointing of the sick, viaticum, um, this is what we have lived with as our sacraments, we live for our sacraments, and it's very important to be sure that at the end of our life we receive the sacraments. Right, and I love that term viaticum. It's from Latin for like three words, way with you. So something to take with you on the way. And it reminds me of uh, the Lord of the Rings in which the hobbits are giving food by the elves, which they call their way bread. And the, the way bread fed people out of proportion to what it looked like. And I think this is what the Catholic Tolkien used as a symbol for the Eucharist. So uh, that's kind of my image. It's like, oh, this is what I'm going to have on the way to take me to heaven. I think it's just a, a beautiful thing we have in the church. Mm. So, Peter, Good you analogy, told me though. that Medicare does something called a wellness visit, or, or you primary care doctors do this. What is it, and why might it be important? A wellness, a wellness, Tom is is a new is a new type of visit, and I think it's it's actually very important, especially in dealing with geriatric patients that have multiple medical problems. The wellness visit is designed basically to give the physician and the patient time to go over screening tests and update them on things that are important for their health care, but maybe not directly related to their immediate medical needs or managing their medical problems. Well, this is a great segue. Is there an age after which screening tests are no longer recommended? uh, Good point. I don't agree with the philosophy that there is a set-in-stone age at which screening tests should no longer be performed. Um, As we said before, everybody ages at a different rate. And for some people, you know, it may not be appropriate to do screening tests after the age of, of 60 or 65, depending upon their medical conditions. Uh, for other patients uh, that are very active, very healthy, on very few medications in their 80s or 90s, screening tests could still be very important. Ah. So I don't think there's a particular time or an age when you can say screening tests should no longer be done. And what are some of the screening tests you recommend? Well, colonoscopies, you know, uh, are still very important to be done. I think colon cancer is a, a preventable disease. And one, especially if one has risk factors or prior polyps, uh, that can be uh, avoided and treated early with a colonoscopy. You know, for women, mammograms are going to be very important. And for men, uh, it's somewhat debated in the literature, but PSAs and prostate cancer still needs to be looked at, uh, I think, fairly regularly. That's perfect. And, you know, one of the things I get asked about a lot are the alternatives to colonoscopy screening, some of the different stool mm-hmm. studies. Is there a role for those, or is colonoscopy the best option? My personal opinion is I still think colonoscopy is the best option, but you and I both know there are patients that just won't have colonoscopies, in, in which case then I think the uh, screening tests for the colon sample are the next best way to go. Well, you know, one one of the things that I get asked a lot by, by some of the older folks that I see are questions related to memory. And the, the question usually is something like, I, I think I'm getting dementia or I'm afraid I'm going to get dementia. And f- frequently mm-hmm. a spouse will be concerned about another spouse. Uh, and that that's a, a common thing. How do you help people figure out, is this normal aging where where things and names might not come as quickly to you as they used to or is this the beginning of dementia that's a good question and many times early on it's 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 hard to figure that out generally if 
you know, there is a, a certain amount of normal age-related memory loss, especially on remembering names and phone numbers and what sort, uh, which don't necessarily mean that there's any dementia going on. You know, when we go through our screening tests, our memory tests, and we find that things are actually doing quite well, and we go through some lab tests looking for any sort of thyroid or B12 abnormalities and find out that things are doing just fine. You know, I think reassurance, everybody's afraid of becoming, uh, uh, having problems with Alzheimer's and dementia, but um, I agree many times uh, it's, there's just normal aging processes uh, that are not dementia and you just have to follow them along. Peter, I imagine that it's probably uh, a challenge to communicate with some patients as they become frustrated with the inability to do things that they used to be able to do. How do you communicate with them? How do you help them? And what wisdom do you have on dealing with them from one of your favorite saints, John Paul II? You know, the, 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 the aging process, you know, a big part of that, is, is learning to accept our limitations. You know, I think St. John Paul II stated it well when he said, learning to grow old requires wisdom and courage. And I think that is so true. And the other issue that I think it's very important to bring in is to bring in prayer and a spiritual component to help them, you know, accept and understand our limitations. And that ultimately, you know, God is in control of, of our lives and these limitations, you know, in, in a lot of respects, are God's grace to us so that we can just grow closer to God in our spiritual life. And are you able to, to say these things to your patients? Yes. You know, it, it gets to a point where faith is very important, uh, especially at the end of life. And I think patients are more open to talk about faith issues at this point in their life maybe than when they're younger. And I think that's one of the, the benefits that you can bring to patients is, is you know, not, not be hesitant to pray with them if, if they want to be prayed, you know, say a prayer while you're in the office. Um, those types of things are very helpful and very comforting to these patients. That's beautiful. Peter, you know, one of the things that comes up, I, I find, as folks are getting older, is that transition from living independently to either living with family or to a nursing home. How do you introduce that idea, especially if sometimes the patients are not not ready to th- hear it quite yet? Yeah. Um, you know, that transition, you, tr- you do everything you can to keep them independent as long as possible and try and give them as much support as you can, either through nurses or home aides or something. But at some point, the families are going to come to you or the patient is going to come to you and say, you know, I'm really having trouble keeping my independence. Um, this is when the door has, sort of has to be opened and we have to start talking about some type of uh, assisted living or extended living uh, facilities for these patients to continue. And the other thing is I think you do it in a positive way, realizing that, you know, care in these extended facilities and nursing homes is so much improved than what it was 10 or 20 years ago. And I think people find them, in, in a lot of respects, uh, accept them as a, as a new home as they go forward. What are some signs or symptoms or experiences that might point a person toward the fact that they would be better off in uh, an assisted living or a nursing home situation? You know, some of, some of the signs, you know, if, if you look at the reasons why people end up moving in that direction towards assisted living, it's going to be either from a lack of mobility where they can't take care of themselves well at home or, you know, potentially uh, a, a lack of, of control of, it, of urine or that sort of thing, um, where, again, they're having more difficulty living in, independently. And simple things just as getting food into the house and getting, you know, nutrition, um, is that being done effectively? Uh, these are when it gets to the point that these can't be uh, taken care of, then we have to think more about moving in. Now, a common problem in the over 65 group are falls. How often do you deal with this, and, and what should our listeners know about preventing falls? Well, falls is a real big issue because, you know, one in four people over the age of 65 are going to fall every year. And 
one in five falls usually leads to some type of injury. Fortunately, many of the falls are preventable uh, if some interventions are done fairly early. And things just like a simple, you know, fall safety checklist in the home uh, can be very important to prevent falls, making sure that that rugs, loose rugs are not on the floor, making sure that cords and wires are not on the floor. Um, and you can have uh, home health aides and home nurses go in there and just do a home safe, safety checklist and make the home environment, things that we take for granted, much safer uh, to prevent falls. Peter, what you know, gives you the greatest joy in taking care of geriatric patients? You know, what gives me the greatest joy is is helping patients through these stages in life to, to realize that it shouldn't be burdensome to them. We can find joy in, in navigating a complex system. And the other thing is, you know, truly integrating faith into the total patient care, you know, um, working with the patient's and developing their faith life. If it's a strong faith life, you make it stronger. If it wasn't a strong faith life before this, you can can improve upon it. You know, one of one of the things that I've always enjoyed doing, especially in in the beginning, you know, a lot of uh, elderly patients, especially Catholics, you know, there's a certain amount of stress at night, thinking and worrying. And one of the things I generally prescribe for them uh, to help them sleep at night, at least to start, uh, is to pray the rosary. <laughs> and I have found that, you know, the end of the day with any sort of worries and daily stress, praying the rosary uh, can be very effective. Man, that's a great that's a great point. And it's it's fruitful and it's and it also leads to relief at the at the time. You know, I I love how you can share your faith with the patients that you see. I they always have that saying, you know, there's no atheists in foxholes. <laughs> and and I think there might be an analogy here as folks approach the end of life, people are thinking about what, what comes next. The patients that you see, I'm glad that they have found you. What, what would you advise to patients if they're looking for a, a geriatric physician? How could they get on, get a hold to one? Is there a, a website online that they could turn to? Sure. You know, the, the American Geriatric Society keeps a tab on the um, geriatrician physicians. Their website is healthandaging.org, and if there's a geriatric physician in their area, that would be the place to go to try and uh, contact one. And Peter, what are some final points you want to leave with our listeners? You know, I think one of the the things is I want to go back to to St. John Paul uh, II, and one of the things that I think a responsibility of the elderly patient is to do this, is to cherish life for its own sake, in spite of a lessening energy and mobility, but also to challenge others to reflect not only of the value of doing, but on the value of being. This was, this was some quotes from St. John Paul II, and I think so many times we go through our lives thinking on the doing part, but not the being part. Um, and I think it's so important for all of us to realize that our importance is from our being, not so much from our doing. Um, and I think this is what I think helps summarize and our, our lives in, in the grace of God. And we can't end on a better note than that. Dr. Peter Morrow, thank you for being with us on Dr. Doctor. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Andrew. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the long-awaited answer to the trivia question. So, patients living over 100, do, are they more likely to die of heart disease than someone in their 80s? And the answer is no. In fact, less than half as many deaths due to heart disease in those over 100. So if you're over 100, less than 9% of patients die of heart disease, whereas 19% of those in their 80s do. Are those over 100 more likely to die of cancer? And the answer is no. And it's actually only one-fifth the rate. So only a little over 4% of patients over 100 die of cancer, whereas almost 25% of patients in their 80s die of cancer. It's kind of that window when cancer is more active. And if people make it to 100, they've, they've overcome the windows, so to speak. Apparently. Yeah. 
Yes. And then the last one, what disease is three times more likely to lead to death in those over 100 than those in their 80s? And it's a disease that comes on rapidly. I suspect you had a good idea about this one, Andrew. Yeah, people will recognize pneumonia as something that usually gets a lot of folks as they get older just because their bodies can't recover like a younger person's. So pneumonia is the cause of death in about 18%, almost one in five patients over 100, whereas it's a cause of death in only 6% of those in their 80s or about one in 16. So there are definite differences uh, in that age group. And, and I operate on patients over 100 several times a year. It's just amazing how well-preserved some of the people around here are. It is incredible. And, and you know, I think the take-homes from this episode would be that everyone ages differently. You want to be sure that you have a doctor to help with that process, somebody you can turn to, especially as you get older. Uh, I agree. I thought Dr. Morrow did a fantastic practical job for us. And You also did a great job for us because you listened to us again here on Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of our show with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Please rate and review our sure. It helps new listeners find us. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing infant mortality and advances in care of premature infants with a neonatologist, Dr. Aaron DeWeese. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.